Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, they did it to us again. 9.45pm Eastern, as Owen assured us, their main event would start on Saturday night. And it was clearly a blatant lie to trick the washed among us, i.e. you and me, into attempting to stay up half the night. But help us a hand courtesy of our friend Michael Buffer, who apparently has still not found enough avenues to exploit his famous catchphrase. But uh, I can totally get on board with this latest uh, venture. Let's get ready to rumble the energy drink. <laughs> Already available in the UK, coming to the US soon. It could be the answer to our Saturday night prayers. If, you know, we prayed. <laughs> right, right. We certainly don't do that. Um, as for whether we drink energy drinks, I don't know. That may vary. I, I mean... You may recall that several months ago, I, I found my solution to these uh, must-stay-awake situations with that Coke with coffee drink. You remember that? Right. Uh, and as far as I know, that doesn't have a ring announcer pitchman attached to it yet. So uh, get on that, Jimmy Lennon Jr. But this let's get ready to rumble energy drink. You know, I have my hesitations when it comes to an energy drink where the words on the can encourage the dudes drinking it to rumble. <laughs> to rumble. Yeah. Right. Drink this, then you're all set to pick a fight. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm probably taking it too literally, but there are definitely people out there among the energy drink drinking yeah. set who can be easily convinced to do whatever the can tells them to do. So uh, sorry, Buffer. I love you, but uh, I'm sticking with my Coke with coffee. <laughs> there you go. All right. But, you know, hey, needs must. We'll see what happens. Right. Maybe it's a particularly boxing appropriate energy drink. I don't know, you know, maybe it, it whenever whatever time you drink it, it kicks in at 1230 a.m. when the main yes, event is that would starting. Be perfect. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But also eases off at like two. OK, right. Yes. If, if it's, it got does... a, it's got a melatonin in it there, too, that kicks in afterwards. <laughs> if that's exactly what it's designed for, then I will have to give it a try. I do think we've stumbled across something here, Eric. <laughs> Finally, our fortune has been made. All right. Well, as you can tell, we're deep in the summer doldrums with relatively little boxing activity to report on or look forward to in the immediate week or two. So we're going to be a little creative in this week's podcast. In two weeks, uh, Danny Garcia meets Jose Benavides Jr. on a Showtime Championship boxing card. And so this week, we're going to look at the two undercard fights on that broadcast. We'll have another edition of Make the Match, and we'll interview a good friend of both of ours and Eric's former podcast partner, the editor-in-chief of Ringside Seat Magazine, uh, Bill Detloff, who will talk with us about his forthcoming book on light heavyweight great Matthew Saad Mohammed, as well as various other goings on in the boxing world. Uh, we'll catch up on the news, including a possible junior middleweight clash down under and a new generation continuing a legendary British rivalry. But first, to Los Angeles, where on Saturday night, well, Sunday morning, Eastern this time, <laughs> the harp missed his own, but you did promise. But anyway, the important thing is that Ryan Garcia, fighting now as a full-fledged 140-pounder, dominated Javier Fortuna, knocking him down three times and stopping him in the sixth round, Eric. Yeah, in front of a crowd of 11,000 plus at a Los Angeles arena now named for pretend money, uh, Ryan <laughs> Garcia looked decidedly more real than pretend as he dominated and stopped the veteran Fortuna far more easily than anyone has before. Uh, with a 10-year age advantage, the 23-year-old Garcia was too fast, too tall, too sharp, and from the moment he dropped Fortuna with a left to the body in round four, too powerful. 
There was another knockdown from a left hook to the orbital area in the fifth, and a third knockdown from a combination in the sixth, and this time at 27 seconds of that sixth round. Fortuna stayed on a knee until the end of the count. With the win, Garcia improves to 23-0 with 19 KOs, while Fortuna slips to 37-4-1 with 26 stoppages. Last week, we both said we were growing weary of seeing Garcia against this level of opposition. After watching Garcia demolish Fortuna, Kieran, are you feeling any different now? No, if anything, it's enhanced my feelings in that mm. regard. Uh, it's more than time for Garcia to stop you know, passing his time with these fringe former Titleist types. Uh, no disrespect intended to Fortuna, but Garcia is clearly a step above them, as we suspected he might be. Mm. And it's time to find out, I think, just how ahead of them he is and how far he can go and, and how he matches up with the best at 135 or it seems uh, 140. I thought this was a very impressive and mature performance. Um, look, Fortuna has lost before, of course, but not anything like this. Um, to be fair, I thought Fortuna looked fairly terrible from the opening bell. I thought he was swinging fairly wildly. Mm. He was reaching with his punches. He was off balance. He never seemed to pose any kind of threat. And he looked very unsure about the artillery that was coming his way. He just generally looked like a guy who'd seen better days. But no, a lot of that was due to Garcia. Um, he controlled the distance very well. He showed better defense than I'm used to seeing. I thought his anticipation of, of Fortuna's punches was very good. And he threw an abundance of straight punches. And, of course, he disguised many of those punches very well. And, and he mixed them up very well. He laid traps. And that might be the most impressive aspect of his win, actually. Like, it's one thing for him to be faster and stronger than Fortuna. That's fine. But he was smarter and savvier in there, too. And, and for a young man with relatively few pro fights and who also apparently doesn't understand the concept of when audio does and does not work on TV cameras, <laughs> um, for him to actually, you know, be out in there out thinking a veteran, uh, I thought that was very impressive. Um, he seems to be working very well with Joe Goosen, who yeah. clearly loves him um, and is a good fit for his offense first style. Uh, I thought it was an all-round excellent outing. But but what it does, from my perspective, is it cranks up that pressure. When you look this good against this level of opposition, you leave fans far less tolerant of you facing this level of opposition in the future, at least on a consistent level. I mean, it's fine to dip back in this kind of well every so often because there are only so many A-class opponents to face. But he has to start trying to make some of those bouts against those A-class opponents. And not just barking about them on social media or in interviews, but genuinely telling his people, pull out all the stops and make them um and there might already be a sort of excuse of sorts built in and that he basically said he's got to fight at 140 um whereas tank davis for example has been fighting lately at 135 mm -hmm. and you know as if he's the one to sort of make demands that tank has to meet him at a weight of his choice but joe markowski of the zone uh tweeted the other day uh, in response to a Stephen espinoza interview on the subject of garcia and that's a, in a way that it's suggested that lines of communication have been opened mm. um, with regard to making a Tank Garcia fight. And my question to you after the Saturday night is, did anything you see make you more or less confident that Garcia can win that matchup if it happens? Um, short answer, sure. Uh, you know, more confident. You know, this performance against Fortuna only raises my perception of Garcia and how elite a talent he may be. You know, whatever you thought of the tank matchup before, I don't see how you couldn't like Garcia's chances at least a little better now mm -hmm. off this. Um, but before I expound on the whole Garcia tank situation, let me share the tweet of the week. Um, okay. Actually, two tweets showing 
opposite ends of the Garcia perception spectrum. And these are both reasonable takes and sharp tweets, uh, but I think they represent well how much people vary on how convinced they are about Ryan Garcia. First, from at really nice Derek, we have Yet again, Ryan Garcia impresses while busting up Fortuna, but no one on here is willing to give him any praise simply because he's more attractive than all of your wives. He's a proper talent. <laughs> um, it's a good observation, and it was true of early Oscar as well, uh, right. that you know whether it's jealousy or just not believing a pretty boy can fight, some just won't give Garcia credit. But he, he deserves credit. Certainly the talent is real, and I think, as you said, Joe Goosen is, is harnessing it brilliantly. Um, on the other side, we have... At I am underscore John W, who tweeted, one, death, two, taxes, three, Ryan Garcia fighting Uber Eats workers, then coming onto Twitter trying to talk like he wants tank. Well, and uh, <laughs> it is, but it's a good tweet. And, you know, this is what people are really polarized about is the Garcia tank thing. Is Garcia going to duck tank? Is tank going to mm-hmm. duck Garcia? How bad do they want it? Will it happen, etc.? And, you know, Garcia... I'll give him credit that he's been more vocal about saying that's the fight he wants next, but you hit on this, the weight thing. He's, in his post-fight interview, I found it kind of troubling that he said he feels better at 140 than 135 and said he's finished at 135, so Tank has to fight him at 140 when he knows full well that, you know, although Davis did move up to 140 for one fight, his last two have been at lightweight, and that's his preferred division. So Garcia maybe throwing up a little bit of a roadblock while saying he wants the fight. It would seem to me if it's going to happen, they probably will have to agree to do it at a catch weight, say 137. But then Javante's uh, lightweight belt isn't on the line. It just, there's all these different ways it can get more and more complicated. And yeah. so in the end, I am not optimistic that it will happen this year. Um, especially because it's not like Spence and Crawford, where this is the only fight left at the weight that matters for either of them. Tank and Garcia, they each have other attractive options to consider. Um, So now back to the initial question of of just the matchup and and who I favor and whether Garcia's chances have improved. I mean, he looked great against Fortuna. Fortuna ain't Tank Davis, of course, but he is a fellow short southpaw, for what that's worth. so I, I think I've swung from thinking that Garcia is about a two to one kind of underdog against Davis going into this. Now I would only make Tank the slightest of favorites. I might hmm. set it somewhere around like Tank minus one fifty, Garcia plus one twenty five. I think it's pretty close. They're both skilled and clever boxers who can do more than just punch, but they both also can definitely punch. Um it's a great fight, truly, and and I hope that my pessimism about it happening next is misplaced. Yeah, I'm uncertain. It's interesting that we both picked up on that same thing, yeah. and um, we'll see. We'll see. It would be great. The whole four princes at 135 thing seems to be shot. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. 135, it's not happening. Maybe somewhere good. between 130 and 147, <laughs> most of these fights will happen eventually, hopefully, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Um, there are a couple of other fights from uh, this last week to recap. Uh, on Wednesday in Tokyo, Kazuta Ioka retained his version of the super flyweight title, and he soundly outpointed Donny Nietes of the Philippines in a rematch of a contest that Nietes edged by a controversial split decision in 2019. And on Friday, 140-pound contender Arnold Barboza remained undefeated and in line for title shot. After surviving a shaky 10th round to overcome Danielito Zuria, who he 
comfortably without pointing over the previous nine rounds. Um, and on the undercard of that, 2020 Olympic super heavyweight silver medalist Richard Torres Jr. moved to 2-0 and after a first round stoppage of embarrassingly overmatched uh, Roberto Zavala Jr. Eric, I know you watched the Barboza card. Uh, anything of note to report from there? Um, I'll say quickly first that I hated the stoppage in the Torres-Zavala fight. Yeah, weird, um, wasn't it? Yeah, Zavala wasn't hurt, hadn't come close to going down. If you're going to allow the mismatch to happen, then you right. also have to allow the winner to actually do something to win the fight. You know, if, yeah. if, if you're planning to stop it the first time two clean punches land, then don't allow don't the, fight the fight in the first Agreed. place. Yeah. Agreed. Um, but on to Barboza and Zaria. What's worth noting here is how impressively Barboza weathered the storm in round 10. Uh, he wasn't out on his feet or anything or even close to it, but he got clipped, got buzzed, and A, had the maturity and presence of mind to hold effectively for a moment. B, showed a good chin to get through an even bigger shot that landed later in the round. And C, stepped up and stepped in and fought back and didn't try to run and hug his way to the finish line. I became an Arnold Barboza fan in that 10th round. And of course, as you said, he boxed pretty well in the nine rounds before that. But that was an impressive display of how to respond when you get buzzed late in a fight that you're winning. All right, let's look forward. Uh, Not much to preview this coming Saturday, just one minor fight that we'll discuss briefly toward the end of the pod. But if we skip ahead to two Saturdays from now, Showtime Championship Boxing returns to the Barclays Center in Brooklyn with former 140-pound titleist Danny Garcia moving up to 154 pounds to take on former welterweight title challenger Jose Benavidez Jr., We will preview that main event and give our official picks on the whole card next week. But for now, we're going to look at the two undercard bouts, beginning with a 140-pound bout. Undefeated Gary Antoine Russell, who is 15-0 with 15 KOs, taking on two-division former titleist Rancis Barthelemy, who is 29-1-1 with one no decision and 15 knockouts. Kieran, Russell most recently took a major step up in competition when he stopped another former titleist, Victor Postal, in the 10th round in February. Barthelemy, like Postal, is a veteran with wins over the likes of Antonio DeMarco, Denis Shafikov, and Mickey Bay. But his biggest wins were six or more years ago. He had a stultifyingly boring draw against Robert Easter Jr. in 2019 and has scored just two wins since. Is he still a real challenge to Russell, or is the youngster taking him on at just the right time? I think it's possible it can be a little from column A and a little from column B, although I think there's much more in column B that that, that Russell's getting Barthelemy at just the right time. Okay. I'm not sure that there would have been an entirely wrong time for him to face Barthelemy. From what I've seen, I think Russell is just better. Um, but, you know, Barthelemy had more to offer four or five years ago when he was, or more, when he was beating the guys you mentioned. Um, he only has the one loss, but he has a couple of slightly questionable decisions as well. All in all, I'm not convinced he's a step up from Victor Postol, which is not meant as a criticism of Russell, by the way. I mean, Postol was, as you said, a major step up, and it's okay to consolidate at that level before moving on some more, especially given, you know, everything that the Russell family has been through in recent months. Um, all of that said, he is experienced, and one thing he has been throughout his career is tricky. He's got all kinds of veteran moves. He's got the awkward slickness that's the result of being a product of the Cuban school. He's only been down twice in his career. Uh, he's never been close to being stopped. I wouldn't be at all surprised if Russell retains his unbeaten record. Uh, I fully expect him to. But maintaining his perfect KO record, that would be a very significant achievement, I think. And so it's a challenge not in the sense that I think Barthelemy is necessarily a very grave danger 
to win against Russell, but it's a challenge in that he will pose some real questions, I suspect, right. that Russell hasn't had to answer before, assuming he's still a hint of the Barthelemy that he was five or so years ago. Uh, the other undercard bout sees heavyweight action between Adam Konachki and Ali Aaron Demirizan. Uh Konachki's 20 and 2 with 15 KOs, built up a 20 and 0 record and a real head of steam until twice being fouled by Robert Hellenius. Uh, Demirizan was outboxed by Effie Ajagba in 2019, but is otherwise undefeated. Brings a record of 16 and 1 with 12 KOs to this contest. Eric, uh, Konachki's probably the better known of the two to listeners, but Demarison seemingly has the greater credentials. He's a former Olympian, after all. Is this an opportunity for Konachki to bounce back after the Hellenius fights, or is he looking at a third straight loss here? Boy, you said four of the most troubling words you can say about a heavyweight boxer. Outboxed by F.A. Ajagba. <laughs> um, yes, Demarison made the Olympics, but he lost in the first round, and I couldn't tell you one way or the other how tough or not tough the road is to represent Turkey at heavyweight in the Olympics. Mm. I'm not saying Demirzin is a bad fighter, but I guess I would push back a little bit on the has the greater credentials description. Um, I don't view him as the favorite here. So what I'm saying is, yeah, this would seem a solid opportunity for Kanachki to bounce back. Not a sure thing, not a gimme. And I never believed Kanachki was a serious contender. You know, he was popular. He was fun. I'm not sure he was ever world-class, but I, I yeah. do think Kanachki is the favorite here, provided his confidence isn't shattered by those two losses. Um, one of them a TKO, the other one a DQ for low blows. Um, I am looking forward to this fight, though, on, on a few levels. First, should be an excellent atmosphere. The, the crowd at Barclays is always loud for Kanachki, who's lived yeah. in Brooklyn since he was seven years old. Second, it's a backs-against-the-wall kind of fight, a, a loser-leaves-town match. Um, you know, if Kanachki loses his third in a row against a guy who is not exactly Tyson Fury or Deontay Wilder. That's it. That's the end of the Kanachki story. And same for Demirzin, you know, lose to a Jogba, lose to Kanachki. Now you're in that Christian Hammer category of mm. just kind of fodder for up and comers. And and lastly, you know, we talked about this with Chisora Pulev, old, slow heavyweights, if evenly matched can be fun. Yeah. Now, these two aren't that old. They're 32 and 33, but they are slow. And, yeah. <laughs> and I think they are competitively matched. Um, you know, does this fight mean anything at all with regard to the heavyweight title picture? No. Does it figure to be fun and get the crowd pumped a couple of beers into a Saturday night at Barclays? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> all right. Hey, our guest this week was for many years the co-host of the late lamented Ring Theory podcast. What happened to the guy he hosted that with, anyway? Um, he's a former senior writer for The Ring and is presently editor-in-chief of the truly excellent Ringside Seat magazine. His book, Matthew Saad Mohammed, Boxing's Miracle Man, will be out soon. Plus, he's a good guy, and like me, probably likes animals more than humans, which makes him A-OK -okay in my book. Bill Detloff, we meet again, and welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Uh, thanks, Kieran, for that wonderful introduction. And uh, I want to thank you guys for having me on so soon after the show's inception. What are you on your 1900th uh, episode? Did uh, Scoop Malinowski get hit by a bus or something? We wanted to make sure that we were in a place that we were, we had it down. So we were probably able to take advantage of your talents and abilities. Okay. We didn't All want right. to waste you being here. The reality is that Kieran still feels a twinge of jealousy. And so I br I bring it up every week. Let's have Bill on. And Kieran just keeps uh -huh. saying no, no, no. And finally, we got desperate enough. Yeah. 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 That's what I suspected all along. Yeah. Right. Um, so 
It's interesting that you have this uh, sod book coming out uh, and also that Kieran and I were just at the Boxing Hall of Fame because in 1997, when I'd been at the ring for a couple of months and I was still new to boxing in general, Saad was the headliner among that next class announced for the Hall really? for Hall of yeah. Fame induction. And my reaction, knowing next to nothing about him at the time, was disbelief that some guy with a record of 39, 16, and uh. three was a first ballot Hall of Famer. Yeah. Clearly, I was underrating him. Um, your previous book was about Ezra Charles, and I know you were motivated in part to write that because you felt he was underrated, underappreciated, forgotten. Did that same motivation lead you to Saad at all, or was it something different that drove you to want to write a book about him? Uh, I think it is the uh, tragic nature of um, his early life uh, that attracted me to his story and to wanting to document it in a book. He's remembered by uh, folks of a certain age uh, as, uh, of course, probably the most exciting fighter of his era. But it's sometimes it's hard to convey that kind of uh, that kind of uh, thing in a written word, right? You can't, you can't, you can only do so well describing it, right? You have to see it, right? So that was a part of it, but mostly it was, I was attracted to the, just um, the terrible nature of his early life. And uh, I think we all know that. Or do you want me to summarize it briefly? Yeah, give it for, for anyone who doesn't know. Yeah, give a sort of the, the, the small sketch. All right. Well, he was uh, abandoned by uh, his family on uh, the Ben Franklin Parkway in Philadelphia when he was four years old. His brother took him out there and left him there. Uh, following the orders of uh, their aunt. Uh, some people pronounce that aunt. How do you guys pronounce it? <laughs> well, my, my mother is from New England, as you know, our mother. Uh, right, and, um, and in New England, they say aunt. So I hear it both ways, depending on where I am and who I'm with. What about you, Karen? Auntie. Auntie. <laughs> Good for you. Your class in this show up. I see it already. We try. I've always pronounced that aunt, but I, I hear it much more often pronounced as aunt. But anyway. Once uh, again, then, this is analysis you don't get on any other boxing podcast. And then there's, do you say often or often? You pronounce the hard T. So that one varies too. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious about the pronunciation of aunt versus aunt. But anyway, um, and so his, their aunt instructed uh, the brother, whose name uh, is and was Rodney, who was uh, four years older than uh, uh, Matthew, to take him out on the Ben Franklin Parkway and lose him, which he did. And uh, after walking all day, he was taken over to a local police station and um, an ad was placed in the paper the next day with his picture and said, if you uh, know this boy, uh, he was lost, come and get him. And nobody responded to the ad. So he was taken over to uh, a Catholic church and then uh, was indoctrinated into the orphanage there and placed in foster homes and blah, blah. Uh, there's a, there's a, uh, a detail about all of this that's accepted as truth and uh, was assumed to be truth for a long time about his mother uh, that I discovered was not actually true. And I'm not going to reveal what that is in the hope of selling a couple more books right. uh, as a result. But um, the, the storyline isn't exactly accurate. It's worse than everyone than what everyone believes it to be. Uh, so uh, all that said, that's why I was attracted to the story, even before I knew that last piece about how it was worse than anybody thought. Uh, but then, of course, uh, you know, he goes on to become this famous uh, boxer and then crashes and burns at the end, which is, you know, just like every other fighter. Right. Mm. Uh, but so that's the gist of his uh, his story. Right. And, wow. and that's how he ended up with that 
39, 16 and three record, the crash and burn. He had a, a long, bad fade out at the end where what, probably 13 of his 16 losses all come after his prime basically. Yeah, essentially. Yes. Uh, he went from world champion level skill to uh, completely wasted in a matter of one fight. It's what, how it looked anyway, but it really wasn't because he had just taken so many beatings that he was just going to burn out quickly. Uh, yeah, but that's all covered. But yeah, the, the, uh, the end was long and brutal and painful and just, yeah, that's how we got all his losses. Yeah. Um, when I was a youngster, one of my favorite boxers was a man from Liverpool called John Conti, who mm-hmm. lost twice to Saad, once a reasonably close decision and once a fourth round KO. And I always felt he was a very talented boxer who maybe didn't quite have the application to be as good as he could have been. And does my memory serve me well in that regard? Or was he just simply not quite up to the level of the Saads and the very best of that era? No, he was very good. Uh, he beat some good fighters. The, the thing that... Uh... I discovered or rediscovered really uh, when researching the book. He's had a really uh, um, stubborn reputation as a dirty fighter who just headbutted everybody, right? He, he won several fights uh, as a result of uh, his opponent being cut following a headbutt. But the guy could fight. He was mm. very mobile, had a really good jab. And uh, he really boxed uh, Matthew Silly in that first fight, right? Um, and even and Matt even said that after that he was completely outboxed and it was fortunate to uh, to score a couple of knockdowns, which turned the decision around. To be honest with you, uh, Kieran, I thought that might have been kind of a um, that fight could have easily gone in Conte's way. Mm. The first fight, in my view, mm. having watched it uh, after uh, researching it, but and and then did he just fight incredibly poorly in the rematch, or did Saad learn from that first fight? I don't think Saad learned uh, much. Uh, I think. Uh, it's, you know, it's curious. Um, every time Saad touched him in that second fight, Conte went down. Mm. And I got the impression, I remember watching it at the time, saying, wow, this guy's just got no chin. Mm. But he did have a chin. I, I, I can't explain why uh, the, the second fight was just uh, a blowout in the way it was. You know, sometimes uh, a guy who uh, fights as hard and as well as Conte did in the first fight decides somewhere early in the rematch that he's not going through that again if his best wasn't good enough. So mm. he's out. Right. 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 I think might have happened in that second fight. Mm. Shifting to your other boxing writing, uh, your most recent editor's note in Ringside Seat uh, offered praise for Canelo Alvarez for constantly taking risks and specifically for going up and wait to test himself against Bivol. And Mm. hey, you fight enough dangerous opponents, you're going to lose sometimes. Right. Is there a fighter who comes to mind who you feel strongly in the opposite direction about? Maybe an ex-fighter who you're still pissed at how little he tested himself or, or a current fighter who, who's wasting away, not fighting anyone good? You know, this stuff is generational. So the first uh, name that comes to mind when I hear that question is Jerry Cooney. Hmm. And a, a lot of your uh, listeners uh, don't know who that is. They're young guys, I guess, but this is a heavyweight that uh, looked spectacular on his way up against limited guys and then got uh, his championship shot at Larry Holmes, gave Holmes a very good fight lost and was essentially nothing afterward and uh the consensus i think of uh from uh fights who guys who really know boxing is that if he had been allowed to have tested himself on the way up against good opposition and found that he could fight through a hard fight and win and that he had that kind of medal it would have been a different guy because jerry cooney could really punch and he wasn't wasn't just just a puncher he could box right uh he had some real good skill and it might not have turned out that way, right? Every He lost every time he stepped up, but they were all to Hall of Fame fighters, every one of them, Larry Holmes, Michael Spinks, George Foreman, right? Uh, but if he had been tested against good, uh, higher quality fighters on the way up, 
he might have turned out differently because the guy could really fight. There were 18 months that went by between his knockout of an old uh, desiccated Ken Norton and his title shots. So he just sat there and did nothing for 18 months. And I know that seems like very little nowadays, <laughs> right. but for the early 80s, that was a lifetime. Okay, yeah. So that that's one example where his managers just refused to put him in with anybody and risk that big money shot against Holmes. And uh, the other one that comes to mind, and this is going to rankle some folks, but it's what it is. I got ratioed on, on Twitter about this <laughs> some time ago is Roy Jones mm-hmm. at his peak. Roy Jones was so spectacular that he should have and could have done much more than he did. Never fought Nigel Ben, never fought Steve Collins, never fought Darius Mikulczewski or Mikulczewski. What is it, Eric? Uh, I say Mikulczewski, but I, I can't okay. say for sure that that's correct. Okay. I call uh, him auntie. <laughs> Very good. Hey, very good callback there, Kieran. Uh, there's a lot of guys that uh, Jones didn't fight that he should have. And he would have beaten all those guys. He could have beaten all those guys on one night yeah. uh, in his prime, right? And you say that now, people look at his record and say, wait a minute, he beat Felix Trinidad and Bernard Hopkins and James Tony. What do you want from the guy? Well, first of all, Trinidad was way past his best, of course. But Jones was so good, he could have gone to heavyweight and, okay, he beat Ruiz. He could have fought Chris Bird. He could have fought Evander Holyfield. He could have fought a... a past his prime Mike Tyson. I remember writing a piece about Jones uh, at some point in the 2000s and saying by any measure, he was enormously successful by any measure and any career enormously successful and shame on him for not doing more. That's how good he was. That's how good he was. He could have been the best fighter ever. And by the time he started fighting guys like Antonio Tarver and uh, other guys that were respected, he was kind of shot. He was on the downside and uh, that chin was just gone. Mm. So uh, I still go back at Roy Jones and say, what a waste. And again, mm. in everything that he accomplished, it sounds ludicrous, but that's how good he was. Right. Well, just don't tell him that, that, that he was that good or that gifted. He doesn't want to hear that don't, part. Don't no. tell him that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Um, thinking back to your side book, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's fair to say that his era is regarded as the best in the light heavyweight division's history. And... In my view, it's no, there's no question. Yeah. Okay. But then you look at, I think I was thinking about this and you look at a lot of weight divisions, welterweight, middleweight, heavyweight, and it feels like the seventies and or eighties were the greatest decades. Um, is that fair to say, or is that just the bias of someone who feels that music peaked with Led Zeppelin's untitled fourth album? Um, I mean, and if it is true, why do you think that is? I, I grapple with this all the time. And it's something I always come back to and it's with everything. It applies to everything. It feels that way to me, too, like that was the mm. best era in boxing across every weight division. That's impossible, right? right. It's just not possible. Right. right. It's entirely generational. And all those things that we love so much from when we were young, it's not that they were so great. It's that being young is great. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's just the way it is. With everything, cars were better. Music was better. Politics yeah. were better. Boxing was better. Football teams are better. It can't all have been better. Right. And the other way I the other way I know that that's true is guys who came up watching fights in the 50s say the same thing. Exactly. In their era and guys before them say, ah, oh, the fighters in the 50s sucked. It's the fighters in the 40s who were great. It's just it's the way it is. And it's maddening. But I, I don't know. How, I don't know how to end that sentence. Mm. <laughs> are, you, are you able to sort of take a step back and get a sense of where you think it ranks now in relate, like try to be objective? And how does boxing in the 2020s rank next to boxing in the 1980s? Or is that a whole other podcast interview? I don't think I can do it. Mm. I don't think I can do it. I don't know. I, can't, I don't know how to answer that. You know, if I just landed here, if I was just born uh, at this age 
without any memory of uh, boxing in past decades, I might look at what's going on today and say, pretty good. Yeah. Pretty yeah. good. Right. <laughs> pretty, 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 pretty good. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> yeah. But I can't do that. So I don't know. I just think we're, we're just all, as we go through this journey, we're just like, oh my God, did I just say journey? <laughs> as we go through this, as we, as we age, we just look back and look back and look back and say, man, everything was better when I was young. But it's just because we were young. Yeah, right. Yeah. Although I'll, I'll disagree with you on one of those. I don't think cars were better then. I, I like cars now that don't break down all the time. <laughs> right. I have a there lot of memories that. of my car not starting when I need yeah, it. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And cars now, new cars now are faster. They stop better. They handle better. They're more fuel efficient. They, they last longer. But they're not but, cooler is maybe what you were getting at. Exactly. Exactly. But but again, that's my age. That's my generation. We all love cars from the 70s. Guys who are older than me, are, if they're running left, like get cars from the 50s. That's just the way it is. Right. It's just the way it is. All right. So let me uh, ask you about a, a, a current fighter who uh, probably part of you feels like uh, couldn't have hung back in the 70s or 80s. Um, I know you've been frustrated for a while by Anthony Joshua. Um, what what chance do you give him of reversing his loss to Alexander Usyk next month? I think he did the right thing, uh, getting rid of uh, his trainers. His his uh, McCracken guy was just just wow. <laughs> Trying to turn him into a boxer was just the worst thing I had ever seen. It's like making Joe Frazier be a boxer. It was just never going to happen, in my view. Even though he did okay in the, in the Ruiz rematch, right. you know, he pulled it off. But Ruiz was seven hundred pounds. I I could have outboxed him that day. Or maybe not me. Maybe you, Eric, but not me. No, not me either. But I get your point. <laughs> maybe Kieran. <laughs> maybe um, Kieran. But I don't give him a great chance. I certainly, I certainly would make Usyk uh, the favorite, but I think he's got the right trainer who knows how to train uh, punchers and aggressive guys. And we'll bring that out in him. And I suspect and hope that it will come in fairly light so he won't be gassed out by the third round. Um, he's got a shot. Maybe he's got a better shot than he, uh, certainly than he did in their first fight. And that wasn't a blowout either. He hung okay. Mm. Right. It wasn't people talk like he was blown out. He didn't. He wasn't blown out, but uh, he clearly lost. But I give him a shot, but not a great one. Yusuk is very good. Also very good. And I don't know how that happened, by the way. When he first started at heavyweight, he didn't look like anything special. Right. His first couple of fights were like, eh, eh. And then he's boxing uh, Joshua's ears off. So uh, I I don't give him a great chance, but I give him a chance. Right. I wonder, should he uh, take a page out of the playbook of, of your favorite fighter, George Foreman? And should AJ retire for like 10 years? get old, get fat, get wise, get less stressed about stuff and maybe come back a, a whole different fighter. Maybe that's, you know, that's one thing that uh, I always talk about or I always tweet about when I see it is that uh, a lot of these guys would be so much better if they could learn to relax in the ring. Mm -hmm. Right. But it's not something you can tell a guy to do and have him do it. You can scream at him, relax all the time, but he's not going to relax until he feels comfortable. And AJ never seems especially relaxed in the ring. Right. And that's probably as much as a uh, reason as any why he uh, gasses out when he does. Right. But it would certainly wouldn't hurt for him to uh, do something to uh, help him relax, especially against a guy like Yusuk, who fights at a high tempo like that. Right. right. I'm working on part of that. I'm doing the get old and get fat part of it. it really... <laughs> we all are, except for Raskin over there. <laughs> I'm fatter than I once was. Yeah, OK. <laughs> um, so sort of staying with the heavyweights initially, uh, Eric and I were discussing boxes. Recently, we were discussing boxers who, who've like made the most of out of their talent, who really overachieved. And my number one was Deontay Wilder, who I maintain is a horrible, horrible boxer, but who nonetheless has not only beaten every opponent, not named Tyson Fury, he's knocked them all out. And so he's clearly effective. And, and if Fury is retired, I'm not sure how many people I would favor against him right now. Um, 
Do you agree with that assessment? I'm wondering if you have any other nominees for boxers who really maybe overachieved. That's a great example uh, of Wilder because he can't box even a little bit. Like he doesn't, nah. even, he has no idea what he's doing, but he's such a good puncher with that right hand, especially or exclusively that he makes up for it. I remember when we were watching uh, the rematch uh, with Fury, Eric, and he came out and jabbed to the body like 11 times straight over the course That's of the first half of the round. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with this guy? Like, you just don't do that. You're asking, you're begging to be countered. You're just right. doing the same. Cause he, so he has no ability to think in the ring at all, but that right hand is such that he's, he can get away with it. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, again, it, I'm so stuck in this generational thing that when I am asked to provide an example of something, my mind immediately goes back to a different era. Right. So, and this might surprise some people, but there are two, well, let me get this one out of the way first. Vinny Pazienza was absolutely without talent, without any physical talent, mm. and achieved way beyond what he should have. Mm. Mm. That's a good opinion. one, actually. Yeah, that's okay. a good call. Um, the other one might surprise, the other two might surprise when I say it. One is Joe Frazier. <laughs> Joe Frazier had no physical talent. He wasn't the hardest hitter in the world. He could punch, and he, but that was learned, right? He learned how to punch, and he certainly wasn't fast. He was small for a heavyweight even then. Right. Even at mm. that time in the 60s, he was smaller for heavyweight and he didn't uh, he wasn't fast. And again, not mobile, but he got every bit of success out of his compromised, quote unquote, compromised uh, body that he could to become a heavyweight champion and a damn good one. OK, mm. uh, he didn't have any great physical talent or athletic talent or even uh, a great fighting mind outside of his absolute toughness and hunger. Mm which I guess you could qualify as kind of a talent, but not really in the way we're speaking, right. I think, right? And the other one, I think, uh, is Evander Holyfield. Yeah. He absolutely wanted it so bad and, uh, and loved the battle so much. Like, I don't, I don't, there are a few guys that I can remember seeing ever who loved fighting as much as Evander Holyfield did, right? And he wasn't the hardest puncher in the world. Even at Cruiserweight, he knocked the guys, he knocked guys out, but it was just and as an amateur, he scored a fair number of knockouts. So he could punch, but he was never like a, a one-punch knockout guy in most cases, um, despite the, the rematch in the Kawi fight. Uh, and he wasn't especially fast or mobile, but he just wrung every ounce of success mm -hmm. he could out of his out of what he had. And it was all it was all emotional and mental. So so much mental toughness with him. Uh, I think he way overachieved. Tyson Fury's overachieved in, in a sense because you know. And that just might be my own bias because I can't I can't stand a heavyweight champion who's got who's fatter than I am. Okay, <laughs> who looks less impressive with his shirt off than I do. I'm not going to ask for proof to know for sure that, he, that you, you look better with your shirt off than he does. Oh, but. I do. Believe me. Believe All right, me. you say so. I'll take your word for it. But uh, but I, and I'm joking because he is he's a talented guy, especially for a big guy. But he's interesting though, and I've I've gotten to arguments with people about this when he's boxing and moving. I'm floored at how talented he is and how athletic he is for, for a guy that size. It's, it's um, unprecedented for him to be able to box and move the way he does. But when he's in aggressive mode, I can't stand to watch him. He's just so clumsy and oafish, and, uh, and I can't believe it's the same guy. And, and the Wilder fights are a good example of that. In the first Wilder fight, I couldn't believe how good he looked. He was superb. And this, this may just be a matter of, you know, a style preference or, or just aesthetics. But uh, to get back to the point, uh, Tyson Fury is a very talented guy, hmm. even though he looks awful. He looks absolutely awful. I can't stand a heavyweight champion and look like that. But hey, who am I? What do I know? <laughs>
And you, you mentioned Joe Frazier, of course, the co-author of your first book, uh, Box Like Indeed. the Pros. Wow, right? look at that. We're going still, way back. Still, <laughs> way back, yes. Yeah. Still, still available for purchase, presumably, right? It is, yes. All right. But the okay. publisher will never will never make back their, their uh, advance, but that's the way it goes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Same with all my books. My God. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So last uh, topic that we want to hit on has nothing to do with boxing. Um, oh, okay. I, I know you love the mob movies like I do and sure. uh, a certain mob TV show that aired on some non-Showtime network. Um, okay. So uh, we had three iconic mob actors die recently. Right. Ray Liotta, James Caan, and Tony Sirico. Any of those three deaths get to you emotionally more than the others? Celebrity deaths don't really get to me emotionally. Okay. But Sirico's kind of bummed me out more than the other ones. Hmm. Maybe because I, I recently rewatched that unnamed show. <laughs> right. right? And, and really enjoyed it. And especially enjoyed that character that he played on that unnamed show. Right. And because he was so great. But the thing that always bugs me about that is he was great but he got all the funny lines. Hmm. You know right. what I'm saying? The writers, people forget that uh, these shows and the, the dialogue and the scripts are written. You know what I'm saying? It's <laughs> not like these, these characters don't create, these, these actors don't create these characters. They're written. These things they say are written for them. So he was really funny and uh, had some great moments in that show. But it wasn't like he came up with them. They were written for him. But, but nevertheless... Uh, I think that last one bummed me out the most, but he's, he was 80 or just about 80. So right, Jesus, how long do you want to live? Right? <laughs> All of them died old, old. So you know, right. what are you going to do? And I would, and I would say he was almost an exception to that rule of that, the, you know, it's all just written for them in, in the sense that like Ray Liotta was, in no way Henry Hill in reality. And, and, right. you know, same with James Conn was not really Sonny Corleone, but Tony Sirico, that character was exactly. basically meant to be him. And that's it was him exactly right. right. The guy was in prison a lot of times, so he was a, he was the only real life mob guy in the set most days, right? right. But uh, but yeah, he was fun. He was a fun character. So that bummed me out when he died. But again, eighty. How long do you want to live? Come on. Right. <laughs> so one final question, very very important question that follows on from the one that Eric just asked you. It was a discussion that he and I had briefly on the podcast recently. Godfather or Godfather Part Two? You know that? Yeah, I've I've gotten that a lot. Well, not a lot. <laughs> gotten that a couple times <laughs> exactly <laughs> including this time once right <laughs> but it's crossed your mind before this moment is exactly right thank you it has i think i, I got i gotta go with the first one all right <laughs> but ring I've, theory forever <laughs> but as i've said to you eric it took me a long time to recognize the uh the quality of of either of them but especially the first one because there's so much going on there's just so much going on. The first time I watched it, I was like, what the hell is everybody talking? I don't even know what's going on. I can't even hear them half the time. I don't know who this guy is, who that guy is. Uh, but after about the 17th viewing, I said, oh, I get it now. I see why this is so great, right? Because the only part I really loved in the first one were, were two scenes when the cop gets it in the forehead mm-hmm. and when the guy gets the knife in uh, his hand in the bar, right? And then and then choked out afterwards. That that combination yeah, exactly. of the right. well, right. I was I thought for sure one of your two scenes was going to be uh, Michael and Apollonia's wedding night together. <laughs> yeah, we discussed that, and you know what? Every time I watch that, I remember what we talked about. <laughs> yes, it's it's probably not appropriate for this podcast, right, but uh, right, especially right. with the fact that the actress was like sixteen years old at the time. But, <laughs> but uh, yes, probably one. But it's not easily arrived at, but probably one. No. All right. Well. 
just for that, we won't bring you back for another 1900 episodes. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll see you guys in nine years. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, thanks so much for joining us, Bill. This has been great. And um, any idea when the book is going to be available, when people can start uh, ordering it? I wish I could say. I don't know. Oh, I'm at okay. the mercy of the publisher right now. And they have it, and they've had it for a while, and I don't know what they're doing with it. But uh, they're doing something, I presume. So uh, believe me, <laughs> I want to get the release date out there more than anyone because I've had to tease so many times. Oh, it's coming soon. It's coming okay. soon. It's coming soon. So people don't forget about it. So uh, as soon as I uh, have a release date, thanks for asking. I will make sure that I get it out there. Right. It's, and we'll be sure to mention it on the pod as well. Yeah, I so what that. you're saying is it's marinating as, exactly. as, as, marinating. as, as happens in boxing. That's yeah. true. That's a good point. Exactly yeah. right. All right. Awesome. Bill, thanks so very much. Really appreciate it. Thanks. All right. Anytime. All right. Our thanks again to Bill. I know how to pick them with podcast partners, past and present. I, I think <laughs> I've done okay for myself. Um, so it's uh, it's been a couple of months since we've played a game of make the match. But as you said uh, at the top of the show, summer doldrums and all. Let's play around. Uh, it's my turn to assign one to you, Kieran. Uh, so you will play matchmaker both on behalf of the fighter and on behalf of the fans. And your boxer this week is an elite fighter, one of the best in the world but inactive at the moment for obvious and understandable reasons, Vasily Lomachenko. Uh, mm. Let's say, hypothetically, he gets back into the ring before the end of 2023. He's still a huge name in an absolutely loaded lightweight division. Who should Loma fight next? Kieran, make the match. Oof. So, if I were thinking only of him... Mm-hmm. And with everything he's been through, his time out of the ring and everything else, <laughs> I'm always tempted to like go to like number 80 in the rankings. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Just I give him a freebie, pick, right? <laughs> I, I would be really tempted to, but Lomachenko's never had a freebie in his career. Right. Um, this is a guy who fought Orlando Salido in his second fight as a pro. Um, so let's assume it's somebody who's, I don't know, top... 30-ish, uh-huh. right? Let's give him somebody. Um, so this is purely, at this stage, not thinking of fans, thinking uh, of himself. Um, has, he ever, has he squashed Jorge Linares yet? I can't remember. I don't believe the two of them ever fought. Um, now, now, now you got me going on box rec to check uh keep keep talking i'm going to see if by chance yeah, they fought and i'm forgetting it but i feel like i would remember that uh if I they had fought each other i feel like so also no he has he oh has. he did <laughs> and we've both and we've both forgotten we've both that forgotten. it even happened yeah, oh, yeah we there both, it is 2018 tko we 10 I, uh, we were the ring announcers <laughs> uh, okay. you, so you I, probably actually were there there's a pretty good chance you were but, uh... Oh gosh. Um, so that's okay. So <laughs> God, we're so we're so washed. He should fight us. Oh my gosh. So who? Yeah. So I would be very tempted to just give him somebody a lot. You know what? Actually, actually, no. I'm going to I'm going to make a change of tack here. Okay. Um, it's somebody who I think he would be very easily, but presently has a much bigger name. Looks like he probably has another fight coming up, which is a rematch of a fight that he just lost. I would feed him George Cambosis, actually. Great call, yeah. That's what I would do. And he could be two years out fighting the war and one-handed beat George Cambosis. Sorry, George, but <laughs> that's just a bad matchup for you. 
Okay. Um, so I would do that, but I don't know that I'd necessarily inflict that on fans. It would go down very well in Australia, of course. Mm-hmm. I'd prefer to see that instead of a uh, George Cambosis Devin Haney rematch, actually, um, which will answer absolutely nothing for right. us. Um, so yeah, actually, that that would be an interesting fight for fans. Well, you always want to say something like a Javante Davis or something like that, but I just think that's too even for fans. I think that's just asking an awful lot. But maybe. But then when we think about this, we don't necessarily, that's the one category. Think of the fighter and think of building him up. So George mm-hmm. Cambosis. For the fans, screw it. Drop him in against Tank. What a okay. comeback fight. What, I mean, unbelievable. If, if he wants to reestablish as the greatness that he is, um, that he has, which I continue to believe that he does have, even if it's not quite as much as it was, the real statement would be to come back from the front lines in ukraine and fight tank davis it's not an original piece of matchmaking but what the hell that would be pretty boffo yeah uh, th- those are good picks i'm glad that you got away from your initial thinking of let's give him a softy uh because lomachenko doesn't do that not to mention he's yeah. he's, he's 34 years old uh doesn't really want to waste a lot of time i wouldn't think so um yeah those are those are good choices they were both names that that crossed my mind on a, on a couple of levels um i could throw out some others but i the, the one that i'll mention is just probably if you were glancing at the lightweight rankings you wouldn't have seen this name but i think as a fan maybe my number one would be Lomachenko against Shakur Stevenson, who is one weight class below. Um, I don't know that that makes as much sense for for Lomachenko. From a risk-reward perspective, that's probably not his top option. But just, um, you know, as a fan, I think that might be my number one. I might even prefer that to to Lomachenko and Tank. There's so many, though. It's more realistic because they're both top-ranked fighters. Right. Right. So it's makeable. But yeah. yeah, I don't know that the reward is there yet with Shakur. So right. yes, and then and then the other one that I'd be curious for your take on that um, I thought maybe would be the right one to do from Lomachenko's perspective, if you could if you could get it, if and the weights are going to be kind of an issue possibly, but would be a rematch with Teofimo Lopez because I do think mm. he could absolutely win the rematch if yep. he takes a different approach, and that's you know in terms of legacy, that's the ultimate for him is to avenge that loss. Yeah. And he's always been quite clear that he didn't want to go above 135. He's not a big lightweight. Right. Um, right. So that's the problem. Lopez is set on. The, who knows? He might come back from the war with. Right. In a, in a, in a, with an extra few pounds. And maybe he's going to need to, whether he wants to or not, at 140 initially. So that's also an interesting one. And they're both more makeable than a Tank Davis fight. Right. Well, I think what we've clearly made uh, realized here is that we would we, w- we would like L- uh, Vasily Lomachenko back in our lives soon. There are a lot of big fights for him to make. Obviously, yeah. he has higher priorities right now, but hopefully, uh, he can get back to his boxing career soon. Indeed, absolutely. Um, time for some news. And in the spirit of the August sixth Jake Paul Amanda Serrano double feature, we have two news main events this week. First up. It appears that Jamel Charlo and Tim Zhu may be meeting in a matchup that I believe I first proposed a year ago or so. Um, But it looks like the matchup might not be taking place until January 28th, 2023. Charlo posted the news and the date on his Instagram, then removed the date and details. But Zhu posted a mocked up poster, a very bad poster, which made it look like he was (laughs) fighting Harlow um, with the date. And he's been on Australian TV talking about the matchup. So it looks like it's a thing. Um, Eric, if it's real, we will have five full months to break it down. But any preliminary thoughts about the matchup and about the timing that seems to be, you know, being mooted here? Yeah, the the timing. This is so unusual for anyone to be announcing a fight this far out. You know, it's July. 
we still don't know much of what's on the calendar for October, and and they're supposedly locking down a late January date. One presumes Showtime would be the U.S. TV landing spot for this, but nobody has told us anything definitive on that front. But if indeed it is happening, and I would guess that it is, my preliminary thought is that I think it's a minor mistake from Zoo to go right into this off what mm-hmm. will be a 10-month layoff at that point without having gotten in another fight or two of experience after a yeah. tough win over Terrell Gachet. Not that Zoo can't beat Charlo, but he's only 27. He hasn't been tested much. He's learning mm-hmm. as he goes. I just don't see what the rush is, um, which in turn means potentially great timing for Charlo. You know, yeah. if, if you're him, if you're going to fight Tim Zoo at all, better to do it now than two years from now. Yeah. Um, on to our other news co-main event. Uh, it's another fight that appears to be coming together. This one at the O2 Arena in London in October. Connor Ben versus Chris Eubank Jr. The fighters' fathers, Nigel Ben and Chris Eubank Sr., were, of course, fierce rivals at middleweight and super middleweight in the 1990s. And that's the obvious selling point, even if the fight itself doesn't make too much sense, given that Ben is a welterweight and Eubank Jr. fights at 160 and 168. Reportedly, the fight will take place at a catchweight of 156 pounds or so. Kieran, you were living in Euroland when the two dads were in their pump, as you Brits like to say. Uh, What are your preliminary thoughts on this potential clash of the Suns? I think it's a bit silly, actually. I'm not sure that it's ideal for either man. Um, I, I saw an interview with Joe Gallagher, who's one of the top trainers in the UK, and he asked rhetorically why Eubank isn't trying to face the top men at 160 and 168 instead of a prospect slash contender from the welterweight division, although Eubank might argue that he's done a lot of that. Um, and also, you know, why Ben would be leaping up to do this before he's really made his bones. Uh, we know why, of course, and, and Joe knows why. But he also wondered whether if this same matchup a former title challenger at 168 pounds, a former British champion, a pro since 2011, a man whose only losses have been to George Groves and Billy Joe Saunders against a 147 pounder who was fighting six rounders as recently as 2018, would even be sanctioned if their names weren't Ben and Eubank. Um, It's much more theoretically of an uphill battle for Ben. You could argue that he has less to lose than Eubank because he'll be the underdog and because of the size and because of the experience. Um, And he'll still have a lot of his career ahead of him, win or lose. But you could have made that same argument and people did about Kel Brook before he faced Gennady Golovkin and look how that turned out. Um, It will nonetheless almost certainly do boffo business in the UK. Um, Having the two old men going at it at press conferences and in the media will, you know, get the nostalgia flowing. Uh, It will be a massive event. It makes sense from a prize fighting point of view, with the emphasis of the on the word prize. As a career builder or a career capper, I'm not sure that it makes a ton of sense right now, personally. Um, a few items on our undercard, all related to fights made or rumored or definitely happening. Uh, Jesse Bam Rodriguez, the front runner for Fighter of the Year, will return to the ring against Israel Gonzalez in the co-main event to the third Gennady Golovkin-Canelo Alvarez clash in Las Vegas on September 17th. Uh, the aforementioned Teofimo Lopez will return to the ring for his first fight since losing his lightweight title to uh, George Cambosis when he takes on Pedro Campa, also in Las Vegas, on August 13th. Rumors are swirling that former heavyweight titleist Deontay Wilder, who we recently just discussed with Bill, may be returning to the ring in October with Robert Hellenius, we've also just talked about. It. It's all just a big callback, this news section, isn't it? <laughs> um, a rumored opponent. Uh, one fight that is definitely happening because it's taking place next week on ESPN, Joet Gonzalez against Isaac Dogbay. Eric, thoughts on any of that? 
So Joe Gonzalez against Isaac Dogbe is a, a solid fight to give us a little something on an otherwise dead boxing weekend. Gonzalez may be a guy we haven't given enough credit to. You know, losses only to Shakur Stevenson and Emmanuel Navarrete. He may just be the best of the rest at 126. Mm. But the real story here, you have Dog Bay fighting in late July on an otherwise dead boxing weekend. ESPN broadcasters, if you're listening, Tessator, Kriegel, Andre, Tim, Bernardo, for shame if one of you doesn't find a way to reference the Dog Bays of Summer during this card. I felt that coming as soon as you started. <laughs> yeah, come on. But now you you <laughs> you yes. are you are not a dad, Kieran. Okay, so <laughs> so you don't have to say it. But I believe all of those broadcasters I mentioned are dads. So step up and prove your dadness. Dog bays of summer. I'm giving it to you for free. Somebody use it. I'm my money's on Tim. Yeah, he would do it. it feels like a Tim comment. Okay, all right. With a well, laugh. I I'll send. It. I actually have his email address. I'm going to send okay. that straight to do him it. and see if he uses do it. it. There you go. Um, the other stuff, uh, Hellenius is basically perfect for a Wilder comeback fight. I feel like I might even have suggested his name at some point. That's the perfect opponent who has a little name value and is credible, but almost certainly you'll end up looking good knocking him out. Uh, Teofimo versus Kampa. The matchup doesn't excite, but... That's okay. It's a bounce back fight after a loss and a layoff and a health scare. A tune up is fine. Um, as for Bam, it's not about the opponent here. It's about the exposure. Uh, an, an undercard yeah. slot beneath Canelo Triple G. That's a great opportunity to win over some new fans. And also, it keeps him on pace to possibly fight four times this year, which is almost never done at the yeah. championship level anymore and would certainly go a long way to helping his fighter of the year candidacy. You know, if, if someone else like a, a Spencer, a Crawford, for example, uh, scores a singular massive win in the fall, you know, Bam stays in the conversation if he's got four wins uh, to his credit. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We wrap things up with your next top five challenge, Kieran. And I'm not working in the word favorite, as we discussed last time, but it is a, it is along those lines. It, it's a category where there are no wrong answers. It's based on your personal picks. And it's a question I've been known to ask a podcast guest from time to time, often a broadcaster who's been ringside for a million big fights. Sometimes I'll ask if there was any fight in history you weren't ringside for but wish you could have been, what is it? So we're turning that question into a top five list. And, you know, your list and mine almost certainly wouldn't be identical because we haven't been to all the same fights. And mm -hmm. I think there's a decent chance I'd put Corrales Castillo in my top five, whereas <laughs> right. it is not eligible for yours. Um, so these can be fights from any time, any era, any five fights in history. You have a time machine. You get okay. to make five stops. And, and every stop is for a boxing match that you were not ringside for when it actually happened that's the assignment oh that'll be lots of fun i think so yes yeah five the challenge will be five there'll right. be a long honorable mentions list. <laughs> right that's for that's probably true yes oh yeah no that'll be a lot of fun okay. yeah I, can... I haven't heard you this excited for a list in a while i, I i'm feeling good about that <laughs> yeah it's rare to hear me sound excited about many things <laughs> right so, so there you <laughs> at, go at least you're, at least at least you're not bill detloff talking about praying to be dead by 80 but uh <laughs> still th this level of excitement from you is somewhat rare 
Indeed, indeed. We'll bottle that and see what <laughs> see what happens next week. Yes. All right, that works for me. And that will do it for this week's edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Thanks very much to Bill Detloff for joining us in, you know, the years that he has remaining. <laughs> His golden uh, years, yes. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we will be back next week with a full preview of that Garcia Benavides card and more. Until then, thanks for listening. Be safe, be kind, 